the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Fetka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Nowadays, of course, you don't need to ask, but I'll try anyway. Mark, what's going on? Well, we're talking today about the economic response to the coronavirus crisis. After a week of delay, Congress is finally getting its act together and passing a major emergency economic relief bill. The bill, it's got four basic components. It's going to expand unemployment assistance for Americans who've lost their jobs. It's going to give direct cash payments to people who have no income. And it's going to create a fund uh, that is proposed by Marco Rubio, Susan Collins, and Ben Cardin, bipartisan plan, to basically $350 billion to replace the revenue of uh, small and medium-sized businesses so they can keep people on their payroll so that they're ready, so they survive the recession and are ready to go when when economic activity resumes. And then there's a $500 billion economic stabilization fund to bail out larger industries that most of which will be run by the Fed. And they say they'll be able to leverage $4 trillion. Uh, So this is a pretty robust bill. And the goal is to see if we can get, we've we've now got the first government-mandated recession in American history. We had Derek Scissors on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about China and the economy, but he was saying the goal is to have a V-shaped recession where rapid decline followed by rapid increase once the danger is passed. But if they were going to have that rapid increase, we can't have people looking for work and businesses collapsing. Collapsing. We have right. to, we, they have to be intact. So right. No, what do you I, think I look, well, I mean, I'm really torn uh, on the one hand because obviously it is the job of government to help people in need. It is the job of government to be there in a crisis. It is the job of government to stabilize the economy at a time of, you know, of a global pandemic. On the other hand, to misquote Everett Dirksen, who apparently never said this <laughs> in the first place, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, it soon adds up to real money. You know, just a month and a half ago, two months ago, you and I were were lambasting Bernie Sanders and and Elizabeth Warren for wanting to spend a trillion dollars on you know bailing out student loans and Medicare for all, and and our government is about to pass a two trillion dollar bailout package. The one thing I worry we're about we're not close to Bernie yet. Bernie has proposed ninety seven point five trillion dollars in spending, so yeah. we're just this is just a fraction of Bernie Sanders. I'm relieved that Bernie <laughs> Sanders isn't the president at this moment. But I, I ask myself, you know, where this money is going to come from. There are genuine consequences to the Fed just printing money. Well, you know, here's the thing. I, as a conservative, I am generally opposed to government intervention into the economy. But the fact is government is already intervening in the economy because we've mandated the recession, right? This is a government-mandated recession. We've already intervened. You know, most economic recession, the 2008 crisis was created by problems in the economy. This is a crisis that's being created because the government has said, you small business have to shut your doors. This restaurant, you cannot have customers in your in your shop anymore. These workers have to stay home rather than productive. And so we're already intervening in the economy. So if the government is mandating a recession, then the government has a responsibility to help people get through the government-mandated recession. Totally. That's not a violation of free market principles. No, no, you're, total, you're totally right about that. On the other hand, just because the government mandated the recession and the government is now trying to provide a financial roadmap out of that recession ahead and give more confidence back to to people to actually continue doing commerce, 
the money's still coming from somewhere. It's not magic money. And when you print money, it's inflationary. When the Fed has an unlimited bond buying exercise, you worry. I guess what I ask myself is six months from now, when we look at the death rates, if we see that the death rates are lower than they are by substantial numbers than an average year of the flu in every one of these countries, are we going to ask ourselves if we did the right thing and if the unbelievable financial pain that we are causing to our country was worth it. But we won't know the answer to that because it may be because of the unbelievable financial pain that the death rates are so low. It, it may it be could, because of the mitigation measures we've taken. It could, I, I it think could the answer be, to your question be. is unknowable. It, it could be, I'll tell you. But you know, when I look at, for example, a country like Italy that's in the throes of this disaster, I actually went back and looked at numbers on what they call excessive morbidity among certain populations due to flu. So I went and looked back at the numbers from 2013, 14, 15, and 16. I think the number and I may be getting this wrong by a couple thousand, but I think that 28,000 people, more or less, died in the flu season of 2016-17 in Italy. We are nowhere near that morbidity in Italy, even with the coronavirus running rampant. And, you know, when we start to look back, all I'm saying is, I have a little bit of uncertainty about this because there is that balance that you and I have talked about previously. There is the balance between the harm that is being done by the virus and the harm that is being done by the response to the virus. No, there's economic risk and there's health risk, and we have to balance them as a country. And I think that's and what, it's really hard. And I think it's very hard, especially because so many of these things are unknown. And so this is where, and I want to get into this with our guest, Michael Strain, in a moment, but balancing that risk is what President Trump is talking about now when he's saying that he, you know, he said the other day, I want to get the economy going and people are raring to go by Easter Sunday. That may be optimistic, but what he's trying to do is trying to get people to factor in that economic risk. Because right now we're hedging on health risk. We're hedging on the virus and trying to stop the spread of this thing and telling people to stop economic activity. We can only do that for so long. At some point, people are going to start rebelling against that. The package that Congress is, is moving now will buy us a little bit of time because you're making up revenue and you're making up income. I sure hope $2 trillion buys us a little bit of time. But, you know, at some point, we have to start coming out of this and we have to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and we got to stop spending. And we got and we also, you know, it may be New York is going to be on lockdown and under these measures for months and months and months. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't South mean Dakota has Missouri, to be. Right. It doesn't mean exactly. that, 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 that at some point will be it when we get the and we got a whole other podcast on the testing debacle which which I commend to all of our listeners but once we get the testing up then we can figure out where is it safe to open up and where is it to, where do we have to shut down no that's absolutely right so to discuss the emergency bill we are really lucky to have Mike Strain join us today Mike is the director of economic studies at the American Enterprise Institute so he's family to us he is the author of a recent book called The American Dream is Not Dead but populism could kill it. <laughs> Terrific book, and everybody should buy it. It's really a great piece of work. He's a columnist for Bloomberg, and those of you who have a, a TV, I'm sure, have been seeing him in his pajamas appearing regularly on CNBC talking about economic issues. It's great to have him with us. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. You have a book out called The American Dream is Not Dead. We are now in a situation where, for the first time in American history, the federal government is intentionally creating a recession. <laughs> we are telling businesses, stop working. We are telling workers, stop coming into work. This is a government-mandated recession. We're basically saying, let's kill the American dream. Is the American dream dead? 
<laughs> so we're saying let's put the American dream in a coma for a few months, uh, and then and then hopefully to uh, to to revive the American dream and, and have it be alive and well. You know what I do in the book is I look uh, over the last three decades at American workers and American households, and I look to see how they're doing over the long haul. During that three-decade period, American workers and American households faced serious challenges. The most recent serious challenge was the financial crisis and Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. But despite these challenges, the story over the long term, the trend that American workers and, and households have experienced over the past several decades is one of upward mobility, wage growth, income growth, responding well to economic dynamism, broad improvements in quality of life, and leaving a better world for their kids than they themselves had. Right now, American workers and households are facing a serious challenge. There's no question about it. It shouldn't be sugar-coated. We are in for a rough spring. But if the past is any predictor, and I think it will be, the American people will respond to this with resilience and will continue their, their upward march as soon as this is in the rearview mirror, which is hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, so I keep seeing pieces with the theme that, you know, life will never again be the same, which drives me absolutely crazy because I think life actually can be the same. One of the things that is an effort to kind of guide our recovery is this congressional bill that is almost $2 trillion in various forms of assistance and stimulus. What's your take on the bill? I think the bill is good. Um, I think the bill is good. I mean, look, the bill's not perfect. Uh, it would be impossible to expect a perfect bill. You know, the bill does some very smart things. The most important component in the bill is a program that offers loans to small businesses to help those businesses meet payroll expenses, to help those businesses keep the lights on, uh, and to help make sure that the workers, the people who work for those businesses, stay employed by the business and keep getting paid by the business. So let me interrupt you for a second. So one of the arguments that took place before the bill's passage was this question of whether businesses should be helped or whether money should go in directly to individuals. It just explain, I mean, I think I think we all understand why it is that businesses need to, to continue to get assistance, but explain the difference. The difference is, is really just who do you target the assistance on. And I think the checks to households, which is a big component of what the Senate passed, really is a solution to the problem of two weeks ago. If you go back two weeks ago, mayors and governors had not started to shut down their economies. And economists were expecting a, a slowdown in the economy for sure, but they were expecting people to you know, still go to restaurants sometimes, still you know, go uh, shopping sometimes. And so the expectation was, rather than growing at a rate of 2% in the second quarter, which is April, May, and June, we might grow closer to 0%, but that we wouldn't have an economic calamity. Then the governors and mayors started shutting down their services economies. And as of yesterday morning, at least 163 million people in 17 states and eight cities were being told to shelter in place. That's roughly half of the U.S. population. This creates a very different problem. If you are telling people to stay in their homes and you're ordering businesses to shut down, you're placing those businesses in a precarious position. They can maybe survive off savings for a week or two, but a lot of these small businesses are low-margin businesses that just don't have a cushion. And so then you're faced with a choice. 
you can continue focusing assistance on households, but if all these businesses engage in mass layoffs, and if a bunch of these businesses have to go out of business because they can't pay their rent or they can't pay their workers, you know, then you're in a much, much, much more serious economic situation than people thought that we were in uh, two weeks ago. So the Senate responded to that reality by creating this program that offers small businesses forgivable loans for payroll expenses and other expenses. My concern is that the Senate did not allocate nearly enough money to that program, but hopefully if the need arises, it can, it can be re-upped in, in, in a few weeks. So there are three elements to the, to the bill. Walk us through them. There are these direct cash payments to Americans. There's expanded unemployment insurance for people who've lost their jobs. There's the program you're describing, which you and, and Glenn Hubbard have been really doing yeoman work explaining and promoting. And then there's this economic stabilization fund, which is $500 billion, 425 of which is distributed by Treasury, and they think they can leverage about $4 trillion in, in liquidity into the economy from that. Is that about right in describing what the bill yeah, is? Yeah, that's about right. And so the small business component is currently slotted for about $350 billion and has that kind of forgivable loan character to it where the business spends the money on payroll and they don't have to pay back the loan. The $500 billion component, Mark, that you just referenced is for large businesses and industries. Uh, and that is a, a more of a traditional lending program. In addition to those components that you laid out, there's money for hospitals in this bill, uh, and there's money for state and local governments in this bill too, though, though quite a bit less than the other components. There's been some complaining about the bill. Before we get to, you know, why $35 million needed to go to the Kennedy Center and, <laughs> and, and $7 million needed to go to Gallaudet University, a very estimable school for the, the deaf and other various things, Look, where is this money coming from, Mike? Two well, we're going to borrow bucks? it. Yeah. Who and, from? Uh, we're going to borrow it. Ourselves. The, uh... <laughs> our children. We're borrowing this from our children, aren't we? Yeah, and foreigners. Um... And foreigners, thank <laughs> you. China. <laughs> we'll borrow a lot of it from abroad. Um, but yes, look, it's a, it's a serious issue. Um, and, you know, we walked into this situation with a deficit of, you know, around a trillion dollars and projections over the next few years for the deficit to, to increase even even above that. You know, this is a good example of why you want the government running a healthy balance sheet in a healthy economy, because the emergency situations come up. And I feel, you know, a lot more comfortable uh, about a $3 trillion deficit for the year 2020 than I would about a $4 trillion deficit. And the difference there is the trillion dollars that we were planning on borrowing before the coronavirus came up. You know, so I think it's premature at this stage to, you know, be making plans about how to get the deficit under control. I mean, right now, Congress's attention rightly should be on putting the fire out. But, you know, this just reinforces the need to get serious about our longer term structural debt and deficit. And, you know, this might be the shock that wakes Republicans and Democrats up to that. You know, nothing, nothing's really worked so far, but, <laughs> but, maybe, but maybe this amount of borrowing is eye-popping enough that, that it will uh, it will do that. Look, as we discussed at the beginning, this is the first time that the government has mandated a recession. And the goal is to create a V-shaped recession, right, where we, we have a rapid decline for public health reasons, but then a rapid increase in economic activity as soon as we start taking off the constraints on the economy and we've got the danger mitigated. 
you know, what are our hopes of having that kind of a rapid recovery? Because it seems like the fundamentals of the economy going in, it's not like the 2008 financial crisis where we had like structural problems with the economy. The fundamentals were good. Unemployment was low and all the rest of it. The virus is a it's a uh, natural disaster, but not like an earthquake or a or a tsunami where you have uh, you know buildings and critical infrastructure uh, destroyed. And if we, because of the mitigation efforts, we hopefully will not have mass deaths, so we'll have a population that's ready to go to work. Should we be hopeful that with these economic measures, that we could get this economy uh, you know back on track in relatively short time once we're ready to lift the uh, constraints? Yeah, I think we should be hopeful about that. You know, that will depend on two things. The first thing it will depend on is the the damage that this virus does to people's health. And there we just we we're just flying blind, right? I mean, we don't have an adequate testing regime up and running. We don't know how many people have had the virus and thus, you know, uh, you know, are not at risk of being reinfected in the short term. We don't know how many people currently have the virus. We don't know the extent to which our hospital system is going to be taxed by this. We don't know what the mortality rate for this is in the U.S. population. We don't know whether or not it's going to respond to warmer weather in April and and more humid weather the way that that some but not all viruses do. So we just we really have no idea what the human toll this is going to be. You know, the public health people say the steps we're taking now, Mark, as you said, you know, will help reduce that human toll, but we still don't know what the toll is. So that will be, you know, really a key factor in how quickly the economy can recover. And and there's just a big question mark about that. And that just underscores the need for the uh, public health community to get tests out the door and to start testing people uh, in, in a much more widespread and systematic fashion. The second factor that will determine how quickly we can bounce back is the policy response. If we end up with millions and millions of people losing their jobs every week. And if we end up with hundreds of thousands of businesses going out of business every week, which is a real possibility, then it's going to take a long time for those workers to find new jobs. It's going to take a long time for businesses to start. The appetite for starting a business uh, among the American people will likely be less than it otherwise would be. And it could take a while to get the economy back to health. On the other hand, if we can keep the basic infrastructure of the U.S. economy in place, if we can keep businesses open, if we can keep workers attached to those businesses, if those workers can continue to be paid by their employers, uh, and people really are ready to go back to work when it's safe to do so, then we can snap right back in a very quick fashion. And we may even be able to have a larger, more productive economy at the end of 2020 than we had at the end of 2019. I mean, that's still a possibility. Uh, um, let's let's so, hope you're right. So here's, yeah. I mean, I think I think what you're really talking about is a question of how long we can sustain a sort of a hold, you know, a sort of a, a hold, a shelter in place for the economy. You know, will employers, for the most part, be able to to take a step back rather than simply liquidating? And unfortunately, I think we're seeing a lot of them start to to reckon with that liquidation, which is why Trump. You know, perhaps a little bit over ambitiously, but why I think he was right to talk about the need to see that light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. And there should be public messaging from the president to say, hey, businesses, this program is available. Don't lay off your workers. You know, hang on. We're going to keep you solvent. We're going to keep you afloat. We're going to keep you able to pay your workers and pay your bills and, and to come back from this when it's safe to do so 
from a public health perspective. It's been hard for the president to say that up until this point because we didn't have uh, the legislation passed. You know, but, but that sort of messaging, I think, could be enormously helpful from the White House. The problem with identifying a light at the end of the tunnel with a date is that we don't know what that date is. Right. Uh, and, you know, that just underscores the need to be testing. I mean, like, ideally what we would be doing is, is randomly selecting people in all 50 states, or maybe you start with the states that are the hardest hit, and just testing them and, and seeing how prevalent is this virus in the general population. Uh, there are tests you can do to detect whether people have antibodies in their system that can tell you whether or not people have had the virus. Right. So much of this does hinge on the capacity of our medical response. And Mark and I have had some very fascinating conversations on another podcast about just that issue. I want to ask you about another thing that we're not talking about. You know, we're talking rightly about the health and welfare of the American people with you. You're an economist. You study this. And you wrote a book called The Is the American Dream Dead?, But, of course, we're also dependent upon exports, imports, and commerce and trade with other countries. How bad do you think the impact is going to be of the coronavirus outside the United States? And how is that going to impact our economy as well? Well, it's going to impact it tremendously. I mean, we've already seen significant disruptions in international supply chains. We've seen U.S. ports uh, receiving three quarters, two thirds of the cargo from other countries they normally receive, that has significant downstream consequences for domestic businesses. So that's going to be another kind of critical component of the response is on the supply side of the economy, figuring out what the government can do to grease the wheels of international commerce. Now, that is very much against this administration's instincts about international commerce. This, this administration has erected barriers to international commerce. You know, you can make an argument that that's reasonable to do with China, but, you know, tariffs on Europe, tariffs on Canada, these sorts of things, um, I, think, I think it's much harder to argue that, that those are reasonable measures, and they work against a kind of, you know, seamless, frictionless global trading system. And so, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be more important than ever uh, as well. Absolutely. I mean, look, at, once this crisis is over, uh, there's going to be a reckoning with China because we and we've discussed this on a different podcast. But China, this is this is a basically a biological attack on America. China's mishandling of this crisis, uh, the, the lies that they told their own people, the way they suppressed information. The reason we're in a lockdown right now is because of Beijing and its mishandling of this. And I think there's going to be a push at some point after this. I'm going to encourage it that we should make China pay for this. You know, we just passed a two trillion. We're just about to borrow two trillion dollars to put our economy on life support during this crisis. Why should the American taxpayers have to pay that? Businesses that have gone out of business, they should have a right to right of action against uh, against China to sue them for the economic damages. And we, quite frankly, ought to President Trump and part of the negotiations ought to make China pay for some of this. Do you, what do you think about that, Mike? I'm not sure I agree with Mark, but even though I agree about blaming China, I'm not sure that we can you get said, money. Out you want to blame them? them you just what don't do you want to think? make them pay. <laughs> what do you think? Well, <laughs> I mean, I I agree that China lies to its people and, and didn't handle this well. You know, I don't know about blaming China for the virus. I mean, the, you know, the, the virus uh, is an act of God in some sense. Uh, but there was a, there was a study, Mike, that showed that if if China had acted just three weeks earlier, ninety five percent of the cases would have not happened. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think that would have been true wherever the virus originated. Those initial weeks, I think, are you know kind of a, a fog of war situation where even the best functioning government wouldn't really know 
what was going on or how to handle super how to handle it super well. I mean, I think what we will need to do is look at the damage internationally, and you know, this could be a situation where Europe is in really bad shape. You know, the eurozone as an institution um, suffers from a lot of internal stress. Italy is just being decimated by this. Uh, you know, the southern European countries have always been a kind of a challenge uh, from an economic and political perspective uh, within the EU. This will put further tension and, and, and threat on those relationships. You know, will there need to be some sort of an international effort that's coordinated to rebuild the Italian economy? And, and if this spreads to other European nations, will that be required as well? What about Asian economies? You know, South Korea seems to be doing a lot better, but you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next two months? I mean, uh, you know, we keep we keep coming back to that. So, you know, I think certainly kind of international engagement right now and that sort of economic diplomacy is is more important than ever. Well, we'll have you back on to discuss your plan for uh, the 21st century Marshall Plan for Europe. Um, <laughs> but uh, but exit question coming back here, back to America. My favorite country. It is mine too. Look, this stimulus package or rescue package, whatever you want to call it, that that Congress is passing, is going to buy us time because we're, as you say, we're going to make be able to make up the revenues of the, a lot of these businesses. Hopefully, keep them alive uh, so that they're ready to start churning. But looking at the light at the end of the tunnel, right now. You know, we, we have to balance the risk to health with the risk to the economy, the risk to of, of the virus with the risk of businesses that can't afford to continue functioning. And initially, at the start of the crisis, it makes sense to put most of our bet on the risk to health and shut down the economy. But at some point, don't we have to start balancing back and factoring in the because I think that's what President Trump is trying to do rather than saying Easter where the economy is going to be completely open is to say he's trying to push the bureaucracy to start factoring in the risk to the economy and have more of a balanced approach. And don't you think that's the right thing to do? I think it absolutely is the right thing to do. And, and I think in order to figure out how to do that best, we just need more information. I worry about two things. The first thing I worry about is the scenario where the virus, you know, really is devastating in the way that, that many people are worried about. You know, you get a situation where 100 million people in the United States end up getting infected. You have a mortality rate of 1%, which is a number that's, that's often discussed by public health officials. Uh, and all of a sudden, you have a million people who die from this virus. You know, I think that that is, you know, in the realm of possibility, you know, particularly if people are out there you know, engaging in commerce and engaging in normal life and, and spreading it. So, you know, we have to keep the worst case scenario in mind for sure. And we don't know how likely the worst case scenario is. It, it could be very likely. It could be extremely unlikely. We just don't know at this point. The second point I would make is that the president has a very limited ability to actually engage in the kind of balancing mark that you're talking about until there's more information. Yeah. The president could say, you know, okay, hey, there are, you know, no coronavirus cases or there are 10 coronavirus cases in the state of Missouri. And I don't know if that's true or not, but let's just say it is, you know, and we've identified all 10 people and they're locked in their houses. So people in Missouri, you know, go, go back to work. The people in Missouri, or at least a whole lot of them are going to say, you know, thanks for the advice, Mr. President, but we don't have a testing regime up, and you've identified 10 people who've tested positive, but how do I know that there aren't, 
30,000 people who are walking around there with this disease who haven't been tested positive, and I'm going to knock into one of them at the store today. So we do need those kinds of balancing measures. You're absolutely right. But both from a public health perspective and from just a kind of practical, you know, how do you implement that balance perspective, we are frozen until we have more and better information uh, because people just won't respond the way the president might want them to until that information is out there. But once we have that information, once we are testing people and we know more about this, and, you know, that needs to happen, like, immediately. Then we need we need to be more like South Korea. And when we are more at, in the position where we're like South Korea, where we have a much more perfect piece of information, we really can move pretty quickly to c- try to regularize people's lives. Yeah, I think that's right. And one more point. I would caution the president to have patience because if we do... <laughs> You're <laughs> cute. Have you met the president of the United States? <laughs> Mark, Mark knows the answer to this, yes. Or just, you know, lock him in the, in, in the residence or something. Take away his phone. I mean, if we do try to start implementing those sorts of half measures, which could be very reasonable under the right set of circumstances, before we know whether we do have the right set of circumstances, and then the virus gets worse, because we acted too quickly without having the appropriate information, all of a sudden, the American people no longer trust anything the president says or anything the government says. And if, you know, a month later, the evidence does say it's time to implement some half measures, it's time to go back to normal, and the government tells people that, they'll be like, oh, yeah, well, that's what you told me four weeks ago. And look, all of a sudden, you know, my brother-in-law died. Yeah. So we really need to, you know. Right. We need to be we need to be cautious. It is a wise message. And the credibility of the government is extraordinarily important, as shot as it is with the way that the FDA and the CDC have managed things. Mike, you are awesome to take the time to come on with us. And we are super grateful and wish you were here in the studio with us. But hey, you know. Hope you're comfy at home with the pajamas and that scotch in your hand. <laughs> now scotch the, hour is 9 a.m. here. Now that the Taco Bell Cantina is closed. <laughs> I know. I was sad. I had to go before it closed. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys are so gross. Awesome. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Michael. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. So, you know, look, Danny, I I share your concern about the massive spending that's involved here. This is one of those. There there are lots of times where I would be opposed to government spending, but this is not one of them because we want to create this V-shaped recession. In order for that to work, Mike points out, I think correctly, that we have to get help small businesses survive and workers survive during the V. Right. I was very hopeful what he said at the end, that we can actually be better off at the end of 2020 than we were at the end of 2019. That's that's the most hopeful thing I've said yet. Bearing that burden is going to be a significant problem, maybe not for you and me, but for our kids and for our grandkids. I don't disagree. And that's why, you know, again, I don't want anybody to die of coronavirus, but I do recognize that people actually are going to die just like you know, just like 60,000 people died of the flu a couple of years ago you know, in the United States, by the way. We're, we're not even close to those numbers on coronavirus. I yeah. worry about perspective. I worry about mass hysteria. I worry about the kind of thing that where you see people on the New York subway screaming at Asians, you know, get away from me, you're going to make me sick, because that is a, an encapsulation of the loss of perspective that... There's that, no vaccine for stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> well said. No, no, listen, that's absolutely true. And again, you know, all I'm saying is 
we may have done everything right in this regard. We may be taking the right precautions, doing the right draconian things, doing the right things with the bailout. I just worry about perspective. And I worry even more that when Congress passes a bill for a $2 trillion stimulus, that some sort of barrier has been breached and that they would actually consider doing such a thing again, having done so already. One thing I will say is thank God that we are the strongest, most powerful economy in the world and that we were doing so well going in that we can do that in an emergency. I hope it was the right decision and I share your concerns about it. But the other thing is I think we need to you know, all these people are running around complaining about for, for, just complain about anything Donald Trump says. You know, well, anything he does, he is he's right, often giving them good but, reasons. But he, but he, but he is, but he right. is absolutely right to say that we got to see the light at the end of the tunnel here. We got to give people hope that there's a day coming. We're not going to be on lockdown like this for nine months. It's just not happening. Um, right? No, it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable, and he's trying to force the bureaucracy. The same bureaucracy that wouldn't allow private labs and other people to do testing because they wanted to do it themselves made those wise decisions to push them, say, you have to take into factor in not just the health risks, but the economic risks to the country as well. This is a massive, massive price that we're paying for this virus and for all these mitigation efforts where we're literally replacing the revenue of every small and medium-sized business in America for months. I mean, taxpayers are doing that. Our children are doing that through debt. It better be worth it, and we better factor those risks into the decisions as to what we do in containing the virus. Two big takeaways from Mike. Number one, optimism about our prospects for recovery, which I agree with you is one of the best things we've heard in a long time. Second of all, we can't begin unless we are more efficient with testing. So, you know, Folks, if you want to understand where that went wrong, we've got another great podcast on that with Alex Stapp. Interesting conversation about just how screwed up that whole thing was. But hopefully we can get our house in order and begin to actually see that light and pray all together that it's not an oncoming train. (laughs) (laughs) On that optimistic note. Thanks for listening, guys. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Distance yourself from your beloved (laughs) friends and family. God knows. I'm ready to kill mine. And I'm ready to distance myself from Danny right now. As he always is. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 